This is an ABC podcast. Hello from Narm on the lands of the Kulin Nation. This is Life Matters. I'm Beverly Wang. And we spend a lot of time working. So it's really great when you gel with colleagues and get along well. But what if you don't? That makes things a lot tougher, doesn't it? We're tackling tricky workplace relationships today. I want to hear your stories. Let's talk. So you know the expression work wife or work husband, work spouse, to describe someone who's your close confidant or ally at work? Well, what about a work enemy or frenemy? Someone who you butt heads with, whose passive aggressive emails set your teeth on edge, or has a completely different communication style to you. And it drives you a little bit bonkers. What if that person works on a team with you? Well, since we're adults with bills to pay, we can't just pack up and opt out. We've got to keep showing up. So what do you do when you don't get along with people at work? How do you manage? How do you cope? Tell me your story of figuring out how to get along with someone at work who really was not your cup of tea. How did you overcome or work through it? As ever, I have an expert on hand to help with tips and advice. Jono Nicholas is the founder and managing director of the Wellbeing Outfit, which provides workshops and consultation on workplace culture. And he spends a lot of time ironing out work conflicts. Jono, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much, Beverly. Jono, in your experience, what do you find are some of the common causes of tension and conflict between colleagues? Beverly, you raised some of the the most common ones just in your introduction. The first is we just work differently and our brains think differently, right? And we come together to solve problems, but we solve problems differently and that can rub us up the, the wrong way. And I think the second one that we see most often is we actually have conflict over really banal average things. For example. Right? Who... who who uh, labels the milk in the fridge? <laughs> who tidies up the meeting room at the end of the meeting? Who cleans the kitchen and washes up the cups? Who leaves the big signs in the toilets that uh, instruct people on how to behave? So when you actually look at workplace conflict, a lot of the uh, the challenges are actually not around the big issues or people behaving outrageously badly that we see in the movies. They're often around these little irritants that can build over time uh, and also just around work style and not being able to gel around work style, even if we quite like each other. Jono, I feel like you've been on a tour of the ABC kitchens from what you're describing. Um, those little things that you're, that you're describing about the, the dishes, the milk, those kinds of irritants, how do those small things then manifest in professional relationships or how we actually do the work of the workplace together? Yeah, so the conflict always operates at three levels. And there's this uh, amazing researcher by the name of Sheila Heen out of the uh, Stanford, oh, sorry, the, the Harvard Negotiation Project in the US, who talks about conflict at three levels. The first level is the facts. You've left a dirty coffee cup in uh, on the bench rather than putting it in the dishwasher at work. Then there's the feelings. 
the conflict can happen at a feeling level. How do I feel about that? That makes me really annoyed. I hate, I just don't like mess. And then there's the identity level, right? Which is, I ascribe an identity that, which is you don't care about this workplace like I care about this workplace. Hmm. And so actually, when you look at conflict, if it's just about the facts, then we can actually resolve that pretty quickly. And we do every day with our colleagues. If it's we don't acknowledge that we hold strong feelings about those facts, then actually we can miss each other. So someone goes, I didn't think it was a big deal, but now I understand it is for you, then I will change. When we get into identity, then we're in a trouble because we say things that will you know, start with, you are always like this. Marketing is always like this. Sales are always like this. And then we don't allow for individual variation and the people have to defend their identity. I'm not a disrespectful person. I just left a coffee cup. And that's when you find escalation of conflict um, in workplaces can get quite significant. That's such an interesting delineation of those three areas, facts, feeling and identity, Jono. You mentioned there about facts, feelings and identity and working it out. I mean, we can sometimes be quite conflict avoidant people. And I think a lot of people try to say nothing when something irks them. Do you recommend that? The short answer is no. But how you engage in conflict resolution is really, really important as well, Beverly. So you don't just kind of launch in. So what I'd really recommend for people is, firstly, if something's irritating you or something's causing problems, how do you reflect firstly back on yourself? Because that's not dangerous. You can just have a think about, why is this really annoying me? What's going on for me that's really annoying? And then you kind of start thinking about, well, maybe I can change how I approach matters, right? If, if dirty cups are actually a source of identity for me, then I can check with the other person and, and, and think differently about the problem. The second kind of part of it is understanding, are you the source of the problem or is the other party or both? And so one of those things I often say to people is just spend a little time observing how they interact with other people. So if they're causing or creating conflict with other people, then you can be more sure that it's not you or not a one-on-one, but it's actually something else going on. And then the third thing is seek kind of curious advice, right? What I saw about curiosity, which is ask questions, which is, hey, that meeting didn't go well between me and my colleague. Something kind of felt off. What what would I need to do differently or how could have I approached it differently to resolve it? And so you ask that of other colleagues often and just by reflecting on your own behaviour gives you really great insights before you even start the conversation perhaps with a colleague. But generally what I would say is, you know, do it, Uh, early do it often in terms of trying to resolve things and most importantly do it positively. Jonah, I just want to tease out something, a small detail, but I think it's confusing me a little bit and maybe it's confusing listeners. When you said in that example that a dirty cup linked into identity, can you clarify that a little bit just so that we really understand what you're meaning there? Yeah, so an identity would be like an absolute statement. So What we find, uh, say, with the the dirty cup is for some people, they don't put a lot of thought into it. For other people, they would say that when you leave dirty cups out, I see your identity as someone who's disrespectful to other people. Okay. Right. So the fact takes on a whole kind of global association. And for your listeners, we all know that we have fights with our partners or significant others at home, Right. A dirty towel or a towel left on the floor when it explodes into a major conflict is not about the towel. It's not about how I feel about the towel, but it's the it's the sense that you don't really respect this relationship to even bother picking up the towel. 
So when we get to identity, we're in a very dangerous place because we're now making global assessments about people's core intent and identity, and then they have to defend that. If you say someone's unprofessional, then they have to defend their identity rather than actually just resolving the facts and the problem. Okay, so not to labour it too much, but some would be listening and saying, well, if someone does leave a dirty cup out or someone is careless, isn't that actually a fact of who they are? And and saying, well, this person doesn't care about the workplace, is that's actually, that makes sense to them. Exactly. And that's why when we're trying to work through resolving the conflict, what may seem very minor to one party can actually seem very, very significant to the other. And so that's really a good sign of why we would resolve it. A, a really... Another really practical example that causes conflict all the time is, do you turn up for meetings on time? Mm. Right, Turning up on time for people is actually a big part of their identity. For, so for, for some of us, we would say not turning up on time is actually disrespectful, that it's an inability to manage your own life. For other people, time's a relatively unimportant thing, right? So turning up 10 minutes late and walking in with a cup of coffee while chatting with a colleague isn't viewed as rude. So actually what we want to do on some of these really core issues is um, in amongst the group make what I would call the implicit explicit. In this group, we agree that we will value time such that we start all meetings on time and finish all meetings on time. Therefore, if you choose to not turn up now, you know that you're breaking a social contract with the group rather than accidentally breaking that social contract, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And that's a really important way in which we can actually prevent conflict but also resolve conflict on these uh, everyday issues more easily. That's the voice of John O'Nicholas, a founder and managing director of The Wellbeing Outfit, which provides workshops and consultation on workplace culture. You can call in and share your story of managing workplace conflict, and, and Jono can give you some advice and tips as well. Uh, I have a text here that says, it's uh, from Noosa, and the, and the texter says, could racism be considered a form of conflict at those three levels that you identified? So racism, once we're at, at racism, we're ascribing kind of global intent. So that gets to the identity level, right? So there, it, whenever there's a, an incident, there might be, there's a fact space. So what was said, what was the feelings associated with that? Was there anger? Was there intent to harm? And then there was this underlying kind of uh, identity, which is generally when people say that, they say, you are a racist person. So we're making a global identity rather than that comment or that conversation or the way in which it was expressed was racist. So when we do that, we're separating the behaviour from the identity. And when we can separate the behaviour and the identity, we actually give the other person an opportunity to change. I didn't, I, I didn't, I now understand that what I said was a racist comment and I now, I'm very sorry and I now um, agree to change. We can do that. But if you say I'm a racist person, the likely response from the other party is to defend their identity. No, that's not me. You don't understand. And then what we find is conflict will tend to escalate after that point. That's very interesting to make that separation. So maybe you yourself can take the heat out of the situation and get a real resolution when, I mean, understandably so, it can be a very emotive reaction. I wonder, Jono, about kind of highlighting the difference between having an issue and an annoyance with the, with someone in the workplace versus someone having a genuine problem that needs to be addressed within the institution, you know, with HR or something like that. Absolutely. So what we've spent most of our time talking about are 
everyday irritants that just come with working with people that we don't necessarily like, Beverly. And I think this is a really important point, right, Mm. is we actually have been trapped into the idea that we need to like our colleagues. And what we kind of know is about we actually like, as in we genuinely want to be friends with probably about 10% of our colleagues. So if you work in a team of 10, the way I kind of think about it, maybe one of those people you want to have over to your house on the weekend. And the idea is to not dislike the other nine. Right, So it means that we need to be friendly and professional, but we don't need to be friends. That's actually not, not, not a requirement. And then within that context, we need to find how do we work well with people who we don't dislike, but who are not necessarily our friends. That's a really important distinction. When we're talking about behaviour that HR or, or your manager needs to kind of resolve, generally what we're talking about is a breach of agreed social conduct within that workplace, whether it be the rules of the workplace or the team rules, like we agreed to turn up on time and you're not, so therefore we have to escalate it, or behaviour that the group has decided is inappropriate. And that so that's why making the implicit explicit is actually a really important part of team dynamics because people can um, move from one workplace or one team even another and what would be viewed as appropriate can actually be viewed as inappropriate and therefore getting other people to help you is important. John, it's so interesting what you say about this idea that we need to be friends uh, friends with our workmates. And, you know, when I, in the introduction, mentioned work wife or work husband, that really alludes to our culture around that, that you have that special person at work. Where does this idea come from? I, it's That's a great question, Beverly. And the short answer is I don't know, but I think it's developed over time as we've invested a lot more resources in kind of company cultures, values, codes of conduct. So if you go back in you know, relatively recent history, people's view about work was it was fundamentally transactional. I come, I work for a set number of hours, I leave. And in fact, my identity and my friends and everything else are outside work. I suspect as we've spent more time in work and workplaces have realised that investing in relationships leads to better productivity, better performance, that it's now bled into the idea that a great workplace is one where I'm friends with everybody and it's an extension of my social experience. And yeah. Therefore, when you don't have that experience, you say, is something wrong? And and my pushback to people is, no, something doesn't isn't wrong. If you are growing and learning, if this is a place where you can feel that you are contributing meaningfully um, and this is a place that's respectful and kind to each other. You don't need to be friends. You just need to be friendly, if mm. that makes sense. And friends, that's a really important distinction. Yeah, it's such an important distinction, isn't it? It's a very uh, very kind of good framework for looking at things. Uh, John, in Sydney, welcome to Life Matters. Tell us about your um, experience of this particular topic. Yeah, guys, thank you for um, having me there. Um, yes, look, uh, I just wanted to share an example. Um, I, I work for a, a fairly large company in an office environment, and um, I've done well, you know, so far in my career. But um, there was a point where I had this manager um, who came on board, and she had a very particular way of coaching everyone. Um, and basically, after every single presentation or every single meeting, she would pull you into a room and talk about everything that you could have done better but in a tone where it came across like basically everything you did was pretty bad. And um, and that was basically a way of coaching. So it got to a point where it really started taking a toll on my mental health, thinking 
you know what, I'm actually not that good. You know, I've, I must have done something that's a fluke. Um, in fact, I just keep getting feedback that I'm not that good. And I started self-doubting that. Um, but then I, I actually found out that that wasn't just me, that it was multiple people on the team that started feeling that way. Uh, thankfully, this person then left and uh, did something else in the organization. So she, was, she wasn't part of the team. But um, it was really a difficult time. I just, you know, basically didn't know how to handle that without... Um, you know, sounding like someone who's just complaining about their manager. That's really rough, John. Commiserations there. I mean, it's interesting, John, I want to bring you in that uh, there wasn't necessarily a solution among the team. They got their relief when that person was moved on in the organization. I imagine that's a fairly common experience. What are you hearing in John's call? Yeah, so the first thing, John, is that's really rough and you see how just repetitive feedback actually starts changing our identity. Right. So the first thing I think I heard there, John, was like that sense of maybe I was a fluke up until now. You start doubting your own identity that you're a capable professional. Um, and the other part, which is actually if you look at it from that manager's point of view, I suspect they're saying I'm trying to be a really good manager. I'm actually my identity mm-hmm. is a good manager and I do that by providing direct feedback that enables you to be better. What is the gap there is the execution was bad, right? So the intent was good, the execution was bad. So how we would kind of deal with that, I would say, firstly, early and often um, is better and positive. And my approach would have been, firstly, as you've done, check with your colleagues is like, is this just me? Am I feeling really weird and you're all enjoying this experience? And what you would have quickly found out, I understand, is other people go, actually, this is not the way in which I learn and be better. And then the question is, okay, now how do we provide direct feedback to the manager and say, I know your intent, right? you go through those three levels. I know your identity is one where you, where you see yourself as a really good manager and we really appreciate that. Your execution and in terms of how you're delivering the facts is this, this and this, and this makes us feel actually worse, which I suspect isn't your intent. So you go through those three levels, reinforce their identity, talk about the facts, this is what you do, and our emotional experience is this. And I'm wondering, can we help you achieve the outcome with us without having negative feelings of most associated with? Now, if she's a really good manager, she'll be then reflective saying, hey, thanks for that feedback. I'll try and be different. If she's not, then you'll find that the conflict escalates in some senses and say, you're just not really good. And then that's a good time to get a third party involved, her director, HR, something to say, how do we resolve this? So hopefully that gives people a very practical way of doing it, reflect on your own behaviour, check in with others, that gives you a sense it's not you, find a way to have a positive early conversation, give her an opportunity to change, and then if there's no change, then you can bring other parties in to help drive change. John, thank you so much for sharing your experience and glad that you're in a better place now, work-wise. Jono, that situation that John shared, there was a power imbalance there, Mm. right? John obviously didn't feel that comfortable, and his colleagues either, about speaking to that manager because the manager is in charge. How do you uh, take that into account when dealing with workplace uh, conflict? There can be blowback, there can be consequences that people are genuinely concerned with and that you know in that ideal situation that you describe where that manager is actually uh, very good and open and just needed to understand that wasn't working that's great but in reality the kind of person who might drag you into a conference room to you know give you this repetitive feedback might not be that open to feedback themselves yeah so this is the kind of fundamental challenge that we have around giving feedback and dealing with conflict which is 
what are we really afraid of, Beverly? And we're really afraid that we'll be rejected from the group. That's why we don't give feedback, why we don't kind of engage in these things, because we think that if we share that feedback to that person in power, that they have the ability to reject us from the group. And so one of these things that we talk about and we help organisations and leaders on is it's not on the individual to feel better about speaking up when they have no power. It's on the leader, the person with institutional power to create a space where they invite it. And that is a skill that organisations need to invest consistently in their leaders from well before people become leaders, in fact. Right. So it's how do we learn how to contribute meaningfully and positively is actually a skill in teams. How do we then train people to be leaders to invite that feedback? And then how do we re- keep reinforcing that over time? So it takes the strain away from John and his colleagues. Mm, it's, tr- it, it's very true what you say, Jono, because uh, some people might be promoted because they're very good at that job. But becoming promoted to a manager is an entirely different job. And that means adjusting relationships with people who they once were on the same team with. Mm-hmm. And that can be very difficult, can't it, to actually pivot to this other level and another way of relating to people who used to be on the same level as you. Absolutely. And the thing is, most people and most managers, and this is always my starting point, is let's assume they're good humans, right? They're not psychopaths who are out to make our lives miserable, But let's also, and let's assume that they have the same goal, which is they want the company or the team to be better. Then if we take those two starting assumptions, then we're really at execution. Okay, they're going about it in a way that's not working for them or us. And that already starts, we're starting to forgive the manager a little bit. Do you know what I mean? That they're not a bad person. They're not an identity as a mean manager. They're just someone who needs support and skills. And this is what we find time and time again is that managers are come through because of technical expertise, they then, the next progression is to run a small team and they're now introducing a new set of skills and the company hasn't invested properly. So that's what we find time again is it's not about intent, it's actually about capability building and that's why you need to you know continue to invest in these skills. I think the question specifically for John Iwell would say is there is power in numbers that if you're the only one giving that feedback rather than that being a shared experience, then when you alert someone other than the manager that they're not changing or not open to change, then often the focus will be come back on you, which is why I always go through self-reflection plus check with other people. Am I seeing something that's hard? And then we can try and start finding strategies to directly engage. Let's welcome Katie in Canberra to Life Matters. Katie, tell us about your workplace situation. Well, I'm saying it's a little bit of a different twist on what how you guys are saying it, but a lot of these conflicts are coming up because a lot of people are not neurodiverse aware. Now, I'm a neurodiverse woman. My workplace don't. Some of them know it, some of them don't. But I am the person that will turn up a couple of minutes late to a meeting because I'm time blind. I have no sense of time. But also, but I will be the person who will stay late and get everything done till it's absolutely done. Or with the coffee cup, if we're in the middle of a good discussion about the actual topic, I won't notice that I've put it down but I will be the first person to go and clean the entire tea room and redecorate it for whatever function or whatever we're having. But for my workplace, that makes sense. So a lot of this is actually about not being diversity aware and particularly neurodiverse in women who we present differently. We are highly capable, but we don't see things the same way. If I'm in the middle of a discussion about the topic... I am going to remember half the time I don't even remember where I put my keys or my path or my laptop because I'm so invested in that topic. 
Yes. So that's, John O'Katie raises a very, very important point is that we need to be cognizant and inclusive of neurodiversity. How does that fit into, I guess, the, the prism that you are, are sharing with us today? Yeah, so I think the first part of it, and thank you for sharing, Katie, it's a really important point that you raise, is we need to be aware of all forms of diversity, right? And how do people bring their their full selves to the team and work and how do we create, before we even get into these problems, a sense that people can say, here's how I approach the world, right? Here's how I naturally kind of think about the world. And so this is what we often don't invest in in teams, is just getting an understanding about how people solve problems differently. Um, what are people's different time pressures? So we often kind of find, for example, that there might be a group of people with young kids. So for them, the hours of 7.30 to 9am are generally horrendously difficult, right? For other people without carer duties, that time is actually tends to be kind of different for a lot of them. So what are the kind of personal things that would actually make time, turning up on time, contributing really, really difficult? And once we understand those, we can start putting the puzzle together to say, where would we compromise? But also to your point, Katie, I now view you leaving the cup behind differently or turning up late. I don't look at it as an identity. You're being deliberately disrespectful that that's part of diversity and something I appreciate about you. But to do that, we have to always make what I describe as the implicit explicit. We have to be able to find spaces where those things are shared and that we then reach agreement and work out strategies to resolve them. And that's an important part of a really good functioning diverse team rather than a team that just naturally gets along. So, Katie, to come back to you for a, for a minute, I'm curious yeah. about, uh, you, so you say that in your workplace, some people know that you are neurodiverse and some people do not. Um, yeah. What's your process of sharing that? And do you notice a shift once you do? Um, basically, it's the people I'm really close to who know yep. and the people who maybe upper management and things that do not. Um, and it's more sort of people go, Oh, yeah, no surprise <laughs> is sort of where it's at. Oh, well, that makes sense. Um, but upper management, they're not invested, so they don't need to know. But also, I think there's a challenge that in the disability space in general, that it's always the people with disabilities that have to declare and be mm -hmm. open about more about themselves, whereas other people have the cultural protection of not talking about themselves or their challenges yep. when everybody has challenges. So I think we also need to have a really powerful discussion about who, ha like how we share things to be productive and a cohesive unit without making it always about disability, like that we have to be the one on, on show or does that make sense? That does make sense, Katie. And I really appreciate you adding that plank to the conversation. That is a really necessary aspect of that conversation. So thank you for calling in. Let's go to Monique in Sydney. Tell us about your story of workplace friction or difficulty. Okay. Um, this is Monique, yes. Um, I, I, I rang in because uh, um, I work in a large uh, industry and that that's uh it's, i'm talking about bullying from um from the down the hierarchy up and then the up hierarchy unable to manage it uh, well enough because the um whoever's in charge the manager is not liked 
and spoken about very derogatory, uh, derogatory. And consequently, it puts us, my girlfriend and myself, who work together, really unsafe and very uncomfortable in how we hear about that manager. And also, she has, this manager is basically the only choice she has is actually to resign. Rather, and she stubbornly is staying because I think she wants to make a point of her professionalism. So it's quite very difficult, um, and because we don't gossip about it and join in, we are also targeted. John, oh yes, Let's mm. talk about workplace gossip because that is a hot topic, and mm. it it is it can pose to be qu- quite an issue. So, what are you hearing in Monique's call, and and, and just spend a bit of time on on uh, the 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 dangers of workplace gossip. Yeah, so I think firstly, Monique, it's it, look. I just really want to acknowledge it's really tough. Like you are in a situation where you genuinely don't have any power to resolve, and that those who are more senior than you, if I understand the story correctly, uh, and a couple of levels above, are not behaving in a way that leads to good outcomes, right? And you're kind of part of the cultural whitewash of that. That that you're not directly involved, but it's but it's causing harm to you. Um, I would hope in those situations that there are leaders and maybe not be in yours that you can uh, engage with and talk to. Um, and if not one of those things, and this is really, really challenging that we have to kind of go to is say, look, is this a place and is this a culture where I can grow and learn and progress? Or is this so difficult? The managers and the leaders are so difficult that I should just genuinely be looking for other employment opportunities. And I want to put it out there because I, I think that's a really important thing to say to all people, which is if you consider other opportunities, you can always come back and say, no, this is something I want to persist with, but you don't feel trapped. And that's a, that sense of yeah. feeling trapped is a really important thing. So um, that would be my yeah. kind of first uh, calling point for you. And then to your point, Beverly, around workplace gossip, often what we find with workplace gossip, and again goes back to this issue of diversity, is when people are actually too friendly and the team or the workplace is too, what I would describe as tribal. So we're more interested in everybody being the same, thinking the same, looking the same, behaving the same, and anyone who's different is now outside the tribe. And often that's where the gossip starts, right? Mm. What you find is you invest in diversity and inclusivity and um, look at how people and value how people think and be different, then you often find that sense of gossip, which implies judgment, starts to disappear because we're having open conversations about difference rather than judgment-based conversations about difference. So I actually see gossip in the office as a really big sign, if I was a leader, that we are not um, creating spaces where we can learn and grow and we're, we're definitely on the path to a toxic workplace. Very interesting. And Monique, wishing you all the best. Thank you so much for calling in. Let's go straight to Julie in Melbourne. And you, Julie, are representing the manager's perspective. Welcome and, and tell us your thoughts. Thanks. Um, I was a manager of a relatively small team of about seven people in a very high-stress um, work environment. Um And I would just like to talk about the the suggestion that a worker who um, feels um, badly, you know, negatively treated by the manager should check in with other workers and colleagues and um, then collectively take the issue 
to the manager. Um, as a manager, I have been in that situation and it feels very much like um, the team is ganging up on you. Um, and it, it can easily escalate far into a far worse situation. Um, and I just think that the whole thing about 360-degree evaluation um, is, has much more potential to deal with it, deal with such situations if it's de-identified and non-confrontational, not in a face-to-face uh, thing, but perhaps some process whereby people um, give their feedback in uh, written form, perhaps de-identified. Um, Three hundred. So the manager is giving it to the team. The team's giving it to the manager, but um, yes. it is able to be received in a way that is Julie, not yeah. confrontational. Sure. Thank you very much for making that point, Julie, and sharing that perspective. Um, Jono, the three sixty degree kind of evaluation. Can you describe for people who may be listening what that actually means? Yeah, sure. So this is a, an evaluation where, as it describes, we go round in a big circle, 360 degrees, where rather than just the person in power or the hierarchical power in that sense, the manager reviews and provides feedback on the performance of the team. The team also have an opportunity to provide feedback on the performance of the leader. And in big organisations, that happens at multiple levels. So you often get lots of different views from peers, from more senior people and from people who hierarchically are, are, are more junior to you. There's That's a couple of really important things around that. Firstly, those processes tend to be in big organisations because they're quite, they actually take quite a lot of they work. They sound resource heavy. They yeah, are. so in a small team or a small organisation, that, that 360 degree review actually happens quite informally. Um, and the other challenge that we often find with that is things they tend to do it, say, once a year, once every six months. And so where there is actually difficulties in the team, it tends to bundle up and people are actually quite conflict avoidant for a long time because they focus all their energy on the one point to provide feedback. Mm. So what we often would say is they're a really useful tool, as Julie said, um, but it's an and, not an or. Right. So in the situation that John described, as we said, about checking their colleagues and providing direct feedback, that was very specifically in the context where John said, I, or, or I didn't feel safe to be able to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with my leader. Let's go and to... Uh, oh, sorry. No, no. So I think that's the really kind of key thing. As a leader, your job is to say, if people can't provide one-on-one -on -one easy feedback to me, then what do I need to do differently to create the circumstances where that's safe for an individual to do that? Gotcha. Okay, let's go to Ivan in Melbourne now. Ivan, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks for calling. What's your story of uh, workplace conflict and how you resolved? Uh, I was not health and safety rep. I had a code of practice to work by that I was trained to work by. I implemented it. No one uh, thought to tell me the facility was going to close. I upgraded the facility and I ended up walking out. If I had my time again, I would have started studying at the sixth year to leave the work at 10 years. 
Right. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes having understanding or perspective of what's actually going on uh, really helps to inform your decision. Um, I'm going to go straight to a question that's been texted in Jono. And it's a question about acceptable behavior and gender. And the texter says, I have a colleague who has become disillusioned with our workplace. He is routinely grumpy, has been rude to colleagues and has made people feel uncomfortable. On the one hand, he has a lot going on at home and is likely stressed. On the other hand, everyone on the team has substantial challenges in their life, in their life, and my manager says he needs to bring his best self to work. Also, the females in the team know that his behavior would be less tolerated in a woman. What do you think? So there, I, I really want to separate out. There's three issues there. So the first is the extent to which the leader of that team is able to provide a colleague with direct feedback around their impact on others, but also be genuinely caring and exploring what's driving that behaviour, right? And so people are making, it sounds like, assumptions that he's got a lot going on at home. We don't know that. What's there? What's the context? Like, how do we genuinely just care for him as a human? And also say that in a workplace, as in any team, we can care for you as a human, but you also need to care about us as humans and this is your, the impact of your behaviour and how do we unpack it? if that makes sense. So that's really, I think, there's a, one of there's a leader skill. How do they have that? And then there's a there's also just a, a, a way in which he is an individual and others are saying are able to work through that. So that you're coming together in a way that provides feedback around behaviour and separating it from identity, but also then genuinely caring about each other, saying so clearly someone's going through a tough time and that's reverberating what across the team. What about the gender aspect of the question there? So I think the second kind of part of that is, is for me at this point, pretty tricky because we're making assumptions and I'm not saying those assumptions are wrong. I'm saying I, I, that things would be treated differently if he was a woman. Um, and my kind of question around that is it, what would we do with that information and does it change our next steps anyway? And what I would kind of say in resolving the small situation, which is ultimately you want to have a harmonious team where people are behaving positively to each other and how do we just deal with the micro at the same time and once that's resolved or at least kind of settled, I think then there's a bigger conversation perhaps with your leader about the systemic problems that may exist around gender or other forms of diversity. Mm. Let's what I would be concerned is you conflate those two at the same time and actually it makes it harder to resolve the small issue or the more, sorry, not the small, the more specific issue because you're trying to deal with a much bigger issue that other people may have different views on. Let's say, let's take that example of someone having a difficult time at home and, you know, we are the same person at home as we are at work and sometimes that bleeds into those two places where we are. If I'm a person, if, for example, there's a person out there who is having difficulties at home and they know that it is affecting their work, what is a, what would you suggest that they do to um, bring that into the open so that it can be accounted for? That can be a really tricky thing to show that kind of vulnerability in the workplace. It can be a risk. Absolutely. And I want to come back to Katie's point is we can't put the onus on the individual to always have the effort to speak up, right? I think what I would come back to is this goes back to capability and training for leaders. It's ultimately the leader's responsibility to create a space and a set of systems and structures where people can share more about themselves without being worried that they'll be rejected by the group. And if you're finding that people aren't able to do that comfortably, then it's saying that as a leader, I need to create different 
different spaces. And where we come down to this, and this is a really important point, Beverly, is one of the things that leaders can do is create what we call ritualized spaces where people can share. So we're not just asking people to share randomly, that we have specific times where people can talk about things and bring more of their personal life in. So one of the things that we do at the Wellbeing Outfit is we have what we call the wellbeing check-in. Every two weeks as a team, we sit down, we're not allowed to talk about work and we go through a ritual that says, on a scale of one to 10, where one is the worst and 10 is the best, what's your number at the moment or over the last fortnight? What are some things that you feel comfortable sharing that would contribute to that number? And what's a wellbeing commitment that you're gonna to commit to, to, to um, being the best version of yourself in the next fortnight? What it does over time as we practice that every fortnight is we get more used to sharing in amongst ourselves the complexity of our lives and our colleagues get to also say, hey, this is a really thing I can jump in and support you on that and help you on that. Mm. But it's deliberately designed as a ritual to say we don't need to share everything about ourselves all the time, but there is a space where we can do that and that's a deliberate structure that we've all agreed to and that we invite people into and there's support to be able to do that well. And so that's a really important point, which is asking people just to volunteer is very, very hard. As a leader, you should think about what are the rituals and spaces, but also as a leader that you should look for opportunities to say, how do I understand the things that will help you be the best version of yourself? And that means including your personal life or the things going on that might impact that. Thank you so much, Jono. Jono Nicholas is the founder and managing director of the Wellbeing Outfit. You've given us lots to think about. It is time for the Too Hard Basket. That's next. Hi, I'm Patricia Carvelis. And I'm Frank Kelly. Every week we invite you to join us on The Party Room. Massive for the government, right? The hottest ticket in town in the nation's capital. But there's a big but. You'll hear all the insights and a little bit of gossip on all the big stories in Canberra. Both sides have a lot riding on this. They won't concede it, but in their behaviour is the concession. The Party Room Podcast on the ABC Listen app. Got an issue you just can't fix? On the fence about what direction you should take? Been wrestling with a situation that's out of control? Let's take it out of the too too hard basket. Okay, let's tap into our inner calm. Because this week we're tackling the case of the racist relative. And here to help, plucked from the satin lined basket where they sleep until we summon them and gently wake them to help us solve these problems, are writer, comedian, and MC Jennifer Wong and writer and comedian Michael Schaefer. Jen, Michael, Michael welcome back to Life Matters. Now, I let out a big internal groan when I found out that this week's dilemma was about, because frankly, it's really quite draining when a family member holds abhorrent views when they enter the frame. Jen, can you relate to my existential groan of distress? Yes, because to have it so close to home must be something that's really hard to to deal with. Um, you know, in the public sphere, there are lots of incidences where there are different you know, um, interactions with racism and to have it as part of your family must be so difficult. Really tough. Michael, how about you? Yeah, yeah, I really empathise with, like, that situation. I empathise with kind of how, like, those types of things just, like, keep, you know, family members apart. I think it's really, really sad when that happens. Let's get to the problem that Pam has shared with us. And Pam writes, 
My sister is in a de facto relationship with a man who holds quite racist views. My children are mixed race, and he is very uncomfortable around my family. Previously, my children and her daughter were close and regularly caught up. However, about 18 months ago, my sister stopped catch-ups, and now the cousins only see each other occasionally when their grandparents facilitate. My niece's father made contact recently as my niece had voiced her distress at not being able to see her cousins, and he has offered to facilitate more regular visits with us when he has his daughter. I'm concerned about how my sister will respond to this idea. My sister has a very strained relationship with her ex-husband. We don't talk anymore, and she is very volatile. I would like to have a relationship with my niece, and my kids want to see their cousin, but should I be respecting my sister's decision to break the contact between my family and her daughter? Jennifer, what are your initial thoughts on this problem? My initial thoughts on this problem are that it's very hard to be funny about this problem because it is so serious. Mm -hmm. You know, my heart really goes out to the family, especially the kids that don't get to see each other. I remember what joy it was to hang out with my cousins when I was little. My first thoughts are that it might be nice to be able to take the situation and involve a third party. So what I mean is maybe the kids could go and like enroll in a course or play somewhere where there are other adults looking after them. So both families just need to take the kids and drop them off somewhere and then they can play outside of the awkwardness and the hostility of the family situation just so that they can just be themselves away from that mess. Yeah, let let the kids do their own thing and not bring Mm. that adult relationship in. I think that's good advice, Jen. Michael, the sister's de facto, the adult, is uncomfortable around Pam's mixed-race children. We're talking about a grown person who feels uncomfortable around children because they're a mixed-race. What do you hear when you hear, what do you think when you hear this? Well, look, he doesn't sound like the best catch. So maybe it's time for the sister to find a guy who uh, maybe isn't racist. I mean, that would be my... I think that's the best solution. Like, they're not married. doesn't seem like they have kids. I reckon leave this bloke and find someone who's not racist. I think that's probably the easiest solution to all of this. Listen, uh, look, not having racists around is probably the ideal scenario for all of us. But yeah. um, it's that's tricky because of the... Sounds like there's a lot of fractures here. The relationship with the sister uh, is quite fractured also. I don't know how Pam's sister, who is very volatile, might might take to that advice. But we can put it out there as something <laughs> well, that we can... Uh, aspire to. <laughs> well, I, that's that's my always solution. Just yeah. get rid of the race. Yeah. Just tell them we're full. The family's full. They're always saying the country's full, so piss off. Just say, hey, the family's full. <laughs> you got to piss off yourself. Michael, you found a way to make it funny, so I appreciate that. We sometimes do need the humour to punctuate uh, <laughs> what is a pretty concerning situation. Because, Jen, it is sad. This family estrangement has happened. Uh Look, I'm concerned about the sister's daughter who has to live with the racist de facto and can't see her cousins. Mm. It's quite worrying for a child to be isolated and be exposed to racist views. At the same time, I've got concerns for the well-being of Pam's kids. Why should they be exposed to racism via family connection? We don't, you know, children are like sponges. Perhaps this child of Pam's sister has maybe unfortunately absorbed some of these views. I mean, who should be at the center of Pam's decision-making process when deciding how to proceed, Jen? Well, I think the well-being of her and children is really important. But, you know, it's, you, you feel, I think, um, you know, in families that the children of your um, 
siblings are also, you know, partly your responsibility as well, I think, sometimes. And, um, you know, it would be really good if um, Pam was able to appeal to her sister. You know, they are sisters at the end of the day. You know, Pam mentioned that her sister is volatile. And I wonder if, again, not funny, but very practical, I wonder if it's time to write a heartfelt letter just to explain how much, you know, she loves her sister, how much her kids, you know, love her niece. Um, and to kind of maybe give some solutions of suggestions, like maybe for three weekends they could do this. You know, here are some options she's found. And maybe, you know, that could be something that Pam's sister would be amenable to because I think let's hope that she does still love and care for her daughter despite having made a not-so-good decision in the in the love life department. Um, I don't know. I'd like to feel optimistic about this situation. There is so much going on in this, there in this story. There is so much it's going on. It's very different to talking about a pigeon coop. I know. You know the neighbor's um, house and how to deal with pigeon, um, pigeon stuff on happening on your, on your roof. You well, know, this is the exact opposite of that This situation. is life in the too hard basket, my friends. We take yeah. what the universe gives us and sometimes it's pigeon poo and sometimes it's racist defectors. Yeah, um, it really is too hard, though, really. <laughs> it, it is. It is too hard. And thank you. I appreciate both of you for being so game. You are our um, Avengers of problem solving. Michael, what about this proposed solution to have the ex, the father of the child, be the bridge to have those connections between the cousins? Given that Pam, sister, Pam is worried about her sister's volatility, bringing in the ex is a solution, but also kind of risky? I mean, oh, that sounds real risky. I mean, this sounds like this, the start of a very, very volatile Jerry Springer episode right now. <laughs> let's get, let's bring the ex in and see if he makes things any better. I don't know. I feel like the ex could probably just make things worse if it sounds like such a tense situation. Look, I've always believed that the solution to get overcoming bigotry and racism is food because you can't dislike a group of people if you enjoy their cuisine. So is it possible that we just got to introduce this guy to new, better food and then he'll start being more sympathetic Gosh, Michael, and more welcoming to other people. I, I really wish that introducing food could solve racism, but I think there's a lot of people out there who love spring rolls and hate Asian people. So, <laughs> mm, I mean, I could see your point there. All I'm saying is, like, I'm Jewish, and I've always found that, like, when people don't like Jewish people, I'm like, here, have, have a, a bagel. Have a lot of after that. They are. Have a latka, <laughs> Get some cream cheese on that bagel. Get some locks on there, and then we'll chat. And I feel like, you know, if we just did that with Kanye, we might have like fixed him. And I feel like it could be a solution for this bloke as well. Jen, you're a foodie. What do you think about Michael's food diplomacy? Um, as someone who's interviewed a lot of Chinese restaurant owners, um, can I say that, you know, racist people do go to those restaurants? I mean, the irony mm. is really kind of weird, but yeah, it would be nice if we could all harmony day our way out of these <laughs> situations, wouldn't it? Um, I live in hope. Maybe, maybe he is just one delicious meal away from from seeing the light. Maybe that's why Harmony Day has expanded to a week because we actually need a whole week to really get people over the line to not hate us. What do you think? Look, if you can't do it in seven days, Beverly, can it even The world was created in seven days, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Um, just to get back to Pam's situation, I mean, I guess the main question is, should she be respecting her sister's decision to break contact with the family, should she just accept that and move on or build that bridge? Um, Michael, you know, 10 seconds, I know this is tough, but but what do you think? <laughs> 
My view is don't. No, absolutely not. I don't think you should respect that decision. I think it's a terrible decision. I think the motivations behind it are awful. Don't respect the decision. And what happens with these things? They just fester. So that crack in that in the relationship in that in that family is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Eventually, it's going to explode at a Christmas lunch in ten years' time. So you got to just nip it in the bud now. Deal with it now. Confront your sister. Confront this racist bloke, and try to just get a solution now. Don't respect the decision. Have a fight. That's what I reckon. Have a fight. Jennifer, you suggested writing a letter, which is very non-confrontational. Do you think that they should just bring it to a head? Um, I'm thinking of the, 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 the children, and I think that Pam should definitely fight for the kids to be able to see each other. And if that means more than a letter then go for it, Pam. I'm, I'm cheering you on. Pam, we are just a couple of comedians in a radio house trying to do our best for you in a very limited period of time on live radio. We do wish you all the best and hope we have been helpful. But if you do need advice on how to manage this relationship, guess what? There are experts at places like Relationships Australia. You can find them online and see if their counselling services are helpful. I do want to thank my two fantastic comedians with their wisdom and their they did manage to bring some laughs to this very difficult situation. I appreciate that as well. Jennifer Wong's new comedy show, Jennifer Wong Has No Peripheral Vision, is now on at the Adelaide Fringe before heading to comedy festivals across the country. Her website is jenniferwong.com.au to check out ticket information. And Michael Schaefer, his show is called Well Worth the Chemo, and it's also at the Adelaide Fringe before heading across the country. And if you have an issue for the Too Hard Basket, please email us, lifematters at ABC. We've got a couple of texts. Judy in Castlemaine says, A friend of mine was managing a very difficult fellow worker and she instituted a cake-based relationship and that worked wonderfully well. I wonder if that works both for the too hard basket as well as for our talkback situation. Lots of thoughts on this particular too hard basket on the Radio National Facebook page. And people advocating various approaches. Uh, Some people saying, cut your losses, cut ties. Dawn says, a close friend dumped me when I asked her not to use racist language. End of story after about 15 years. Just like that. We need to choose where our values lie. Good luck. Susan also says, I had to lose a friendship of 40 years due to racist comments. Pull up friends making casual racist comments. As you say, we need to choose. Many others also saying that the children should be supported amid all of this conflict. And Laurel says, if the children want to be in contact, support this. Too many families normalize no contact for very spurious reasons. Start a new way with your family. All the best. The adults who are not in favor will have to deal with it. Lots of views on sorting out this very tricky situation. Best of luck to you, Pam. Hope you can work it out. And a big thank you to Life Matters producers who bring you all the stories that you hear throughout the week. They are Michelle Weeks, Beck Zajak, Tracy Tromp, Nat Tenchich, Lyndall Rollins, and Lisa Needham. And our executive producer is Angela Owens. Remember, Life Matters is always on on the ABC Listen app. You can find the show there along with other great shows like, hmm, Stop Everything. I recommend that one too. I'm Beverly Wang. I have enjoyed my time with you as always, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you again next week. Catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.